the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? You're obviously here because you like our podcast or you just stumbled across it. But if you like what you hear, please go and subscribe, rate us, and recommend us to your friends. That's number one. And are there other things the hell going on, Mark? Yes, actually. So we have a really cool podcast today because we are talking to the authors of the New York Times number one bestseller, A Very Stable Genius. And who is that very stable genius? Donald Trump. (laughs) I have to ask you this question just up front. Okay. First of all, two questions. Do you think Donald Trump is a very stable genius, Mark? I think that Donald Trump is in many ways a political genius, yes. I mean, to get elected and do what he did, without a doubt. Is he the most deeply educated and informed president we have ever had in American history? And does he know a lot of things that you and I and others in Washington take for granted and expect a president to know? Possibly not. Uh, In fact, demonstrably not. But he is without a doubt, a political genius. The revolution that he launched to get elected, without a doubt, that is an act of genius. And also his ability to see something that none of us here in Washington saw on the left or the right, which is that there was a segment of the American public that was being ignored by the establishments of both political parties and were looking for leadership, needed a representation and a voice, and he could find a way to be that voice. So yes, I think in that sense, he is a stable genius. For me, actually, I I may not use the word genius, but I do agree with you that his sense of the American public and his feeling about this under and unrepresented part of America that really would rally behind him, I think, was hugely important and that he actually deserves a a ton of credit for it. The word stable just doesn't work out for me. He's just not stable. So, But it also, to your point, requires a little bit of humility on all of our part here in Washington because he got it right and we got it wrong. We weren't listening to those people. And look, reality is- Those there's deplorable been, there's people. Those deplorables is exactly right. And the reality is, is there has not been a lot of humility in response to Donald Trump's presidency. There's not a lot of people running around saying, you know, he saw something I didn't and maybe I should give him a little bit more deference and listen and maybe- change my thinking a little bit in response to what he uncovered in the American body politic. Okay, so this is a perfect segue to talk about this book. I don't think the authors would mind if I say it is a litany of stories that are about the president, about the president from soup to nuts. It starts with before his inauguration, and it continues till till pretty recently. And it is just one pretty horrifying story after another. That's the natural course of things, is yeah. that is that the people who are most eager to speak to you are the people who have something to say. Yes. And Donald Trump has done badly by a lot of people in this town. He's fired a lot of people. He's called a lot of people stupid and lazy and morons and dopes and losers. And yeah, dopes and losers and morons and stupids and all those guys. Yeah, they got an axe to grind. So yeah, yeah. you kind of get it. This book has made a big splash. You know, you guys, if, you, if you're if you not living under a rock, you know, have heard the big splashy stories about the president being briefed on, you know, NATO allies and on, you know, what our treaties really mean and getting really mad at all the briefers and that, that made big headlines. But all in all, he comes across in the book as an incredibly shallow, not very smart, not very nice man 
And yet, I think he's on track to be reelected right now. I mean, what the heck? Because I don't think that's the complete portrait of Donald Trump. And uh, they tell that. I mean, this, the story they tell about the tank meeting is incredibly well reported and has a lot of detail that nobody had had before that they unearthed. For those who might not have gotten to this point yet, I mean, basically what happened was the Joint Chiefs of Staff and Secretary Tillerson and some of the president's you know, adult minders decided that he really wasn't getting how the world worked. And so they needed to have a big briefing for him about how the world works. Phil Rucker, in an interview, uh, called it the uh, schoolhouse rock version of how the world works. And Donald Trump didn't take very well to that. And he said some things that uh, he probably shouldn't have said. But at the same time, it was incredibly condescending to invite the commander in chief into the tank and give him a schoolhouse rock briefing on on how the world works. Yeah, but this is like our favorite, you know, one of our favorite lines, you know, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not following you. Yeah. Right. Just because they're calling you stupid and it's offensive and condescending doesn't mean you're not stupid. And that's the problem here is that is that there is an element of stupid that has shocked people. You know, there's a story in the book about how the president really didn't have an idea what happened at Pearl Harbor. Now, I find that almost impossible to believe, given that he is a living, breathing, American-educated person of a certain age, by the way, when actually Pearl Harbor was loomed very large in people's lives. But, you know, uh, he seems not to have all that much, you know, knowledge. Well, you know what? It's Sometimes uh, knowledge is overrated. Mark! But, you know, sometimes the more you know is not better. So here's the thing. There is a lot of stuff that happens here just because that's how it's done. It's how it's always been done. So we just keep doing it, right? And Trump came in. He was not a senator. He was not a congressman. He, he was not a governor. He was not never been elected to public office. He was a businessman who came in to make America great again because the establishments were screwing it up. And so the establishment shouldn't be surprised when he comes in and he's like he's not steeped in the culture of how we've done things. And he starts asking some questions that, quite frankly, ought to be asked. Okay, why do we have troops in South Korea? Why well, aren't we? Don't you know why we have? Troops I know we have South troops Korea. in South Korea, but that's and a, why? but it's a fair question to ask. Yeah, no, these it's things. fine. I'm and not also, why? That, I'm not objecting. Why are we to him not asking. winning after 18 years in Afghanistan? I'm not objecting fair to any that of millions those questions. Of Americans ask. And why are our NATO allies not paying two percent when they promised to do so in 2014? All of those are fair questions. Yes. The issue here is that not terribly fine line between being a disruptor, which I think, you know, you sort of rightly say is something Washington has been asking for and really needed for a long time. There is a deep state. People are complacent. Our bureaucracy does believe that presidents come and presidents go, but I'll be here forever. All of that is 100 percent true. The question is, does that disruption need to have, you know, nuclear force? Well, that's what the American people voted for. And he's come in. And look, sometimes when you send a disruptor in, when you send a bull into the China shop, you shouldn't be surprised when some China gets broken. And the American people made a conscious choice to send a bull into the China shop. And he's breaking China. And in some ways, I like the way that he's breaking China. In other ways, I don't like the way he's breaking the China. And I don't I don't agree with everything that he's doing. But People in Washington have responded to the Trump presidency in, with a mixture of the establishments have responded with a mixture of revulsion and just and, and contempt. And contempt. And I'm sorry, but he's just, he he was elected by 63 million Americans, and they sent him here, and that's 63 million votes that either you or I or any of those people in the tank or anybody who's questioning him got. You know, so the Washington Post has really owned this genre since since all the president's men, right? It was Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward who wrote this incredible blockbuster uh, of a book that brought down Richard Nixon, and it was the inside story that ended up being Watergate and trying to disrupt the 1972 election, and. The 
these two Washington Post reporters have continued that tradition in a lot of ways by writing not the insider tell-all, but the sort of the expose. Behind the scenes. The behind the scenes expose. And one of my real arguments with this genre. And again, I think these are very serious people. This is this is not a book full of innuendo and baseless rumor. They're very meticulous. They're very serious about their reporting and about their confirmation. But I will say this. Under Donald Trump, Washington has become a maelstrom of unsubstantiated garbage that I hear five, six, seven times a day from different people because there are so many conspiracy theories that are floating around. There are so much crazy. Like that Donald Trump conspired with Russia to steal the 2016 election? Well, that among other things. Yeah. But, but frankly, lots and lots and lots of other stuff. And I do think that it's a challenge for everybody to try to sort out what is just axe grinding from what are real complaints and you know again without without reference to this book in particular but just in reference to this presidency it is instructive to look at the Mueller report and to remind people that a lot of things that everybody believed were true and would have staked their reputation on were not oh my gosh i mean if you just look just i did a column in the washington post called the russia hall of shame where I just went through all of the things that were said just by people with security clearances, members of the Senate Intelligence Committee, members of the House Intelligence Committee, former intelligence officials who basically told the American people, wink, nod, you know, you, you can't see this stuff, but I see it and I've had access to it. And let me tell you, there was a conspiracy. And it wasn't true. And so, you know, I... So this is something we want to talk about with them. We don't want any, any spoilers. But, and, you know, we, Mark and I obviously have a <clears throat> somewhat different opinion about some of this stuff. You don't disagree with what I just said. I don't disagree with most of it. I do think... I mean, I think the president, as is always the case, snatches defeat from well, the that's, jaws that's a whole of different story, victory yes. and is incapable of saying the right thing in response to these things. And why can't he say the right thing? Because he doesn't think the right thing. His instinct is not to do the right thing. You know, and the truth is, of course, that had the Russians been willing to tilt the elections oh, in his favor, he probably, as he said, would have been happy to take the, the help. Oh. And and on that note of disagreement, you guys can't see Mark rolling his eyes at me. Let we should introduce our <laughs> Which as Arthur tells us is a sign of contempt. <laughs> Philip Rucker is the he's the White House bureau chief for the Washington Post. He leads the coverage of the Trump administration. So he's a hard working man. He and a team of post reporters won the Pulitzer Prize and the George Polk Award at a very prestigious journalism award for their reporting on Russian interference in the 2016 election. He's really got a, a, an amazing pedigree. He's also a political analyst for NBC News. And a good guy. And a, and a great guy and a, and a patient guy, as you guys are about to find out. <laughs> Carol <laughs> Enig, my impertinent questions. Exactly. <laughs> Carol Lennig is a, is a national investigative reporter at The Washington Post. She's worked there since 2000 and covered uh, the Trump presidency and other fun topics. She won the 2015 Pulitzer Prize for her reporting on security failure and misconduct inside the Secret Service and was again part of the post-Pulitzer Prize winning team for reporting on Russian interference in the 2016 election. I think between them, they have five Pulitzer Prizes. So it's great to have him here. All right. Well, Phil Carroll, welcome to the podcast. This is kind of a reunion for us because back in the day, uh, Danny and I worked on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and Carol was covering the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Yeah. Wow. Look how far we've come. 
you know, this is a meticulously researched book. You've gotten so many people to talk to you and tell you stories from behind the scenes. I'm going to ask you two questions. What is the most surprising thing you discovered about President Trump you didn't expect to find? And is there anything about him you expected to find you didn't? Mm. I like the way you asked that question. So, you know, could be a good reporter. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Phil and I were surprised by a lot of things. I think probably the one that was the most compelling and and sometimes worrisome was the president's lack of knowledge about America's story, how we came to be who we are, the principles that founded the country, and, and also his lack of curiosity about it. But Phil and I also noticed one more thing, which is a theme that runs through this book, which is that the president's aides are distraught about that lack of curiosity, the degree to which they're concerned about his impulsive decisions, his rejection of information, the level to which they are concerned worried us. What do you think is the best story in the book? When? What do you mean by best? The most compelling and and dramatic and cinematic? So uh, that's a hard one because, of course, you know, everybody will know what's one of the biggest stories uh, in the book was, you know, about Trump calling his military and senior national security advisors dopes and morons. Was it dopes? Dopes and babies. Dopes and babies. Um, And I know Mark has a question he wants to come back to on that one. Really up to you. What do you think is just the best? And I'm going to leave that definition to you. Well, I think the most sort of cinematic moment is the one that you just alluded to, the meeting at the tank in the Pentagon. But that's been in so many of the the excerpts and, and coverage of the book. I think the best details in there are so many of them are just the small moments that reveal the character and the thinking and the, the process of, of this president who's so unique and extraordinary in every way, day to day. But there are all these moments like, you know, he's he's at Trump Tower in the residence uh, during the transition, trying to plan for his government, but also to plan for the inauguration. And his body man, his assistant, Johnny McEntee, comes up to the residence, the penthouse, to deliver him his sandwich for, for dinner. And McEntee's in the administration McEntee's right now. now in the news because he's the guy running presidential personnel uh, executing the purge on behalf of the president. But back then, he was a, a nobody, a 20-something former football player from Connecticut, bringing the boss his sandwich for dinner. At that moment, Trump overhears Melania his wife in the living room talking about Rick Gates and inauguration planning. And he just loses it and on the spot fires Rick Gates as the inauguration director, turns to Johnny McEntee, the body man, and says, Johnny, you're the new executive director of the inauguration. Now remind us, why was the president so mad about hearing Rick Gates' name? He thought that Gates had basically rigged the campaign, taken money from Trump for polling and further political operations in an unfair way. Uh, Trump was mad about that. He resented Gates. Gates, of course, was the deputy and close associate of Paul Manafort, who during the campaign was the campaign chairman. Uh, So there was a lot of animosity between Trump and Gates. But Gates was a key figure in those early months of the presidency behind the scenes in a way that the president didn't really fully understand and had been directing the inaugural planning. So it's just one of these moments that, and there are so many of them over the course of these three years in the book that show the president's kind of impulsive decision-making in the way he creates some of his own chaos. I love Phil's story. And in a sign of, of things to come with the president, Trump was really upset with Gates because he commissioned a poll that found Trump was doing very poorly in the campaign. And that really outraged the president. <laughs> well, which this? also turned out to be wrong. It, it did turn out to be wrong. <laughs> he, was, he was probably right to have fired uh, Rick Gates. Okay, another follow-up. Was there a great story that you left out? 
There were a lot of times we thought about cutting things because the book was getting so long, right? But but our editor, smartly, Ann Godoff of Penguin Press, she said, everything that has to do with a portrait of this person is important and it's history. So let's keep that. So our guiding principle was we didn't keep in stories that didn't relate to him directly. There were other stories where we didn't meet our standard, our burden of proof, which is pretty rigorous. It, multiple people had to tell it to us consistently. It had to be backed up in, in multiple ways. And there were there was one mystery in all this that I found fascinating, which was Jared Kushner. When the legal team for the for President Trump is struggling with like how to represent the president after Mueller is appointed special counsel, they privately say, you know what, it seems like Jared Kushner and maybe even Ivanka should be out of the White House. It's a problem. It's potential witness not tampering, but they're messing up the witnesses because they're floating in and out of meetings. They're chit-chatting with other staff. They're kind of matching up stories. We think we should get them out. We never could figure out what happened exactly, but we knew this much, that right after those lawyers began discussing that privately, two of them found really unflattering information about them leaked to the media. And we never really figured out who did that, but it was just an intriguing moment. Mm. So, I mean, a lot of the people who you spoke with told you a lot of negative things about the president, but I'm sure you also spoke to people who held the president in high esteem. What are some of the positive things you learned about Donald Trump during the course of writing this book? There's actually one kind of positive theme throughout the book, which is his incredible power to communicate to the tens of millions of people in this country who follow him, who voted for him in 2016, who are almost certainly going to vote for him again uh, this November. He has this innate ability to sort of understand exactly what they're feeling, what they're wanting to hear, and then channeling it back to them. Um, His rallies are breathtaking (laughs) in that sense. And in talking to his advisors, they, they really held up the president's sort of command and mastery over communication and and messaging with his base in very high esteem. You know, a lot of the political advisors around the president felt like their advice was secondary to what the president would come up with himself in terms of uh, motivating and galvanizing his own supporters. But aside from politics, how about about him as a leader? He's decisive. Um, That came through. He had very clear views of what he wanted done. And even as he would hear advice from some of his advisors and counselors or even the experts inside the government to persuade him to to change course or go in a different direction, uh, the president was pretty convincing at at sticking to his guns and doing what he believed was the right thing to do, even though a lot of the people around him disagreed. That's fascinating. So if Donald Trump is reelected... Do you think, based on all of this reporting and all of these conversations, I mean, I feel like you know the man really well, at least from a certain perspective, do you feel like he's going to be a different leader once he's in a second term, and to use that Barack Obama term, once he's liberated? Or do you think he's been liberated in this second term? Because he wasn't that decisive for the first couple of years. He was more intimidated by you know, experienced Washington types and he seems now to be less that guy. So what do you think? I think you're totally right about the beginning. But the guts of Donald Trump are the same, which is, you know, this this view of himself as he describes himself, a game day player. I don't need any more information. I got it. Mm-hmm. You know, so rejecting the information of these these experts, being really frustrated with the guardrails who tried to advise him, Secretary of State Tillerson, 
Defense Secretary Mattis, John Kelly, Chief of Staff, people that really tried to, you know, guide this president who they supported, whose agenda they really loved, but who wanted to sort of give a new guy on the block some ropes to work with. I think what Phil and I have found in this reporting is past his prologue as he gets more and more confident in the job, more and more frustrated, driving the grown-ups out of the room. Second term is going to be even more emboldened and unbound than the last several seasons. He overcame the Mueller investigation, a criminal investigation that found substantial evidence of obstruction of justice. He overcame a House impeachment inquiry, which found some significant evidence of him enlisting a foreign person to investigate an American person. He, in the last two weeks, has sort of shown us, I think, the path for his next term if he wins it. You've given us a perfect segue to Mark's questions, but I don't care. Um, <laughs> that's just the kind of collaborative relationship we, we have. have. Exactly. So, Phil, when you, you one of the things that you said was that Trump is a, a great communicator. And I, I mean, I think I think it's even people who disagree firmly with him agree he really does have a sort of a finger on the pulse of, of how a certain segment of the population feels. One of the things that is interesting, though, is that, and, and it comes through a little bit in the book among the critics, and it got Hillary Clinton into a ton of trouble in her election campaign, is this sense that Donald Trump himself is the litmus test. That basically, if you support Trump, you are one of those people to whom he can communicate, and somehow a lesser form of life, or let, let's just use Hillary's word, deplorable. You know, th- that is that fair, th- that, that he's become this sort of litmus test for a lot of people? You know, he's become, and, and you guys know this better than, than most, he's become a litmus test for the Republican Party, right? You're not a true Republican these days if you're not completely loyal to this president, and, and he's made it so. That's one of the reasons Jeff Flake is a former senator now, and, and uh, Bob Corker is a former senator. Um, so that's become a test within the Republican Party. Are Trump and his followers lesser forms of humans? Uh, that's not for us to say, certainly. Um, and I've been to tons of Trump rallies and, and talked to a lot of Trump voters and have found them to be quite insightful and uh, thoughtful about why they support the president and, and have clear convictions about that. That's certainly not our conclusion in the book. I, I will say there are some people who are serving this president and have served this president who would not consider themselves part of the MAGA movement, who are not uh, folks you would see at a Trump rally, who are conservative and Republicans and you know want this president to succeed. And that's why they've joined to work with him and wanted to teach him and school him and advise him and so forth but they are not of the movement, uh, so to speak. And and in fact, you know, we don't speak for them, but they may in fact view aspects of the movement with some contempt. Mm. So let's talk about the tank meeting. You know, you described in an interview the briefing that they gave Trump as sort of like a schoolhouse rock on how the world works. It was, I think the, the title of it was the uh, post-war international rules-based order is the greatest <laughs> gift of the greatest generation. I mean, the idea of giving the president of the United States a schoolhouse rock treatment is incredibly condescending. You know, he reacted angrily, but how did they, was that a good idea? How did they expect him to react? You're being brought into the tank. You've been elected by 63 million people. You're the president of the United States, commander-in-chief of the armed forces, and you're being talked down to by your secretary of state, your chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who are treating you like a five-year-old. I would have blown up too. 
Well, Schoolhouse Rock is definitely our way of saying that it's really basic, Mark, but the people who who organized that meeting and witnessed it did not view any of the speakers as condescending to the president. Quite the opposite. They just knew that they were having arguments with him all the time. Why do we have troops here? Why are they forward deployed? Why do we have bases here? Why don't we charge countries for bases? These were questions that came up and up and up again and over and over again. Why do we have this treaty? Why is NATO not paying as much as we are? Why do the other members sort of skate on the on the contributions? So they wanted to have this meeting to sort of explain to them, throw some literally countries on the charts and on the maps around them and say, here's why we're here. This is what keeps us safe at night and explain it. They didn't view themselves as condescending, but he certainly absorbed it as, you're trying to teach me something, and just so you know, I don't need teaching. And he wanted to teach them a few things, which, to be fair to the president, he wasn't entirely wrong about, right? We're we're in Afghanistan a long time. He just used some words that were really vicious, you know, calling it a loser war, as Phil has said so much better than I have in the past— in front of Vice President Pence, whose son has fought there, calling these people dopes and babies who've risked their lives and given up their children's lives. A woman in the room was crying as he was speaking. It was that ad hominem, the way he reacted. Yeah, I understand that. And look, I'm not, I'm the first person to criticize the president's tone publicly as well as in private. But I think it was condescending. First of all, just who thought that it was a effective way to reach the president and say, here's how the rules-based international order works. I mean, you know, just what a dumb idea <laughs> well, to Steve, begin with. Steve Bannon but, was right. That did not work well. You know. <laughs> but then the other thing is, like, the Post just published this great series called the Afghanistan Papers, which basically the theme of which was both the Obama administration and the Bush administration were presiding over failure in Afghanistan and selling it to the American people as success. The president came in and basically started asking them some really tough questions about why are we there? Why haven't we won yet? You know, what's wrong with you people? You're 18 years in a war and you can't win a war? I mean, why are those unreasonable questions for the commander in chief to ask? Those are actually questions he was elected to ask. I can take a stab at that because yeah. I'm not in President Trump's head. But as I said, there's nothing wrong with asking that question. It was the manner in which he swatted them all back. You know, Dunford, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, tried in a stuttering way to tell the president, look, we shouldn't fire Commander Nicholson because he's running the war we told him to run. He's following a blueprint we've had, and you haven't changed that blueprint. We can change the blueprint, but he's not a loser because he's been doing what we we said to do. There's nothing wrong with shaking up the snow globe of how we've we've conducted this war. It, again, was his rejection of the information that made people so upset and his dressing down of the people that he has to rely on to take us into war. Like, for example, if we'd had a skirmish with Iran not so long ago, these are the people he'd have to come to for help. I think that's fair. You know, I'm, I'm always much harder on, on Donald Trump than my friend Mark, who's, who's more balanced in his, his approach. But, and I don't like the language. You know, and that's so often what you hear people saying about Donald Trump at the end of the day is it's not even the policies. It's the language. It's not the policy. It's the Twitter. It's not the policy. It's the on the other hand. And I want to come to this question. Do you empathize with him a little bit from this perspective? It seems to me that he has, from the outset, thought that the pointy headed elite establishment of Washington and even of his own party, his own adopted party, I should add, rejected the legitimacy of his election. 
You never thought I would win, and I won. You thought my people were losers, and we're winners. You, you know, and all, I mean, I can go on and on, and these are all, will all be <laughs> reasonably accurate quotes. But I think he views especially the Russia stuff as an assault on his legitimacy, which is why he's taken all of this so personally. And, you know, again, and mishandled it. I don't think any of us would disagree that there are ways and ways to have handled this and that Donald Trump's way was not a very good one, but that it comes from this, the insecurity that we're talking about and that Mark just asked about, right, which is, you think I'm dumb. You're talking down to me. You think I'm an idiot. You think I don't understand the most basic things about everything. And you don't get the fact that I am your boss and I don't see myself the way you do. And not only that, but now you're trying to make me seem like someone else bought this election for me. I mean, I can see that narrative in his head, right? And you're nodding. Not. And everybody everybody has their own narrative and their own explication of things. Doesn't it explain a lot of how he's responded to a variety of things in your mind? Absolutely. Um, you're spot on. It explains so much. And think back even before he ran for president, he was feeling excluded by the establishment, by the elites. Remember, he was at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, I guess it was 2011, and Obama was up there roasting him and making fun of his hair and, and making fun of the prospect of a Trump presidency and the you know the gold dome and the South Lawn and all that. I mean, speculation that was, that was the night he decided yeah, to run. And that was, humili- <laughs> that was humiliating for him in yeah. a ballroom full of Washington elites wearing their tuxedos. And uh, he's always felt an outcast and excluded from New York society, even though he was wealthy and had his name on buildings, he was looked down upon by the New York elites. It's something Mayor Bloomberg has been talking about on the campaign trail the last few days. And really, comes... really effectively, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, not, not yeah. And then he comes to, to Washington as, as the new president and already the intelligence community is presenting to him not only their findings that Russia interfered on his behalf, which in his mind cast doubt on his legitimacy as president, but the, the salacious material in the dossier that, that Jim Comey, the FBI director, personally presented to him, which he found embarrassing and humiliating and, and really angered him and hit a nerve, obviously, personally with him. And he's been living with that for three years now. And it's why he continues to talk about the hoax and continues to try to rewrite the history of the Russian interference in 2016 because it has been this cloud over his presidency. I really liked his description, Phil's, and I also really liked your word, Danny, empathize. I totally can empathize with President Trump's situation. Can we name a president in history who, before they were inaugurated, was told, mm, it looks like there's some really horrendous dirt about you and that you may not have won the election without the help of a foreign power that's adversarial to us. Imagine. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I, I'm trying to think of what that would be like. And then now flip it to the other side of the chair. You're Clapper, you're Brennan, you're Comey. You're expecting when you go into that room on January 6th, a scene we also detail in the book, that tense briefing, right? We're meeting the nominee and president-elect, and we're going to tell him this crazy stuff. They're expecting for the president-elect to be a normal president-elect who has some gravitas and, and some cushion. They're expecting that person to say, oh, my goodness, a foreign adversary has been interfering in the election. This is just horrible. We'll do something about this. But instead, the cluster of advisors around the president-elect immediately start talking about the press release they're going to produce 
to establish that the intelligence community has found, which is not true, has found that it had no impact on the election. Clapper reminds the president-elect and his advisors, we're not in that business. We don't assess whether or not it had an impact. But on T-6, Donald Trump is already saying to himself, this had no impact. And that's the number one story. Mm. Yeah, but... Let's keep in mind, there's the impact of Russia interfering in the election. And then there's the allegation, which was central to the whole Mueller investigation, that Donald Trump colluded with them in that. It wasn't just questioning his legitimacy as president. It was an accusation that he faced, that he had committed treason, that he was a Russian agent. And not by cranks, by the former CIA director said he had committed treason. Members of the intelligence community who were had access to classified information that we didn't told us that there is evidence of collusion, that there's evidence of a conspiracy between the Trump campaign, and it turned out to be a conspiracy theory. I mean, do you not disagree with that, that the Trump colluding with Russia to steal the election was proven definitively by Mueller to be untrue? But here's the thing, Mark. The president has never been able to fully distinguish between the collusion aspect but and we the actual Russian interference. But we should. He, he, he blends it all together in his public statements. And I think in the way he thinks about it, he thinks about it all as personal, as this undermining all his us. legitimacy. Right, exactly. oh, yeah, and I don't disagree with that. But, but we have a responsibility, the rest of us who are following this and reporting on this and commenting on we this, do. to draw, and, and to we draw have. a distinction between it. I'm not criticizing yeah. you. I'm just saying all of us. Um, but the reality is if you, you tell a fascinating story of the, just the chaos inside the White House and, and as he's lashing out. And I mean, I think to myself, well, how would I react if someone had accused me of yeah, treason? Yeah. How would someone I react if somebody had said that I had done these terrible things, betrayed my country, was a Russian agent when I knew it wasn't? You wouldn't true. have acted like Donald Trump. No, maybe not. I but I, better. but, but I think it's understandable. All of when you look at all of the the way he's lashing out, you know, it's funny. He never me- mentions Stormy Daniels, right? Because he did it, right? <laughs> but he didn't do. But he was mentioning Russia all the time. Because he knew he didn't do it. We have a situation in this country where for two years we had a cloud over the president uh, and the presidency and he had to li- live through this. Every day stories accusing him of all this stuff and it turned out it wasn't true. It was a conspiracy theory. You know, I don't disagree with your central point at all. And uh, as Phil said, we've made some great efforts at the Post to document that. But there is a little line of nuance here. And the nuance is, as, as again described in our book and in our newspaper, That nuance is that as a candidate, President Trump said, Russia, if you're listening, and literally people who are operatives at the GRU went back to work that day as as he spoke in Doral, Florida on the campaign and urged that Russia somehow get involved in finding Hillary Clinton's emails. By the way, I would have liked to see Hillary Clinton's emails. I wasn't going to ask Russia for them, but I would have liked to see them. But there is a connection, but not necessarily collusion and treason, which is a horrific word. And from somebody who had a lot of weight to say it at the yeah. time. And, and abused, who was in the Obama abu- administration and abused in a senior that right. position uh, at the time. Agreed. But the, the degree of contact between Russians who were trying to make, if you will, the lower level aides was a good reason to be worried. And then the President Trump encouraging a participation which was real over in Moscow. That participation was trying to penetrate Hillary Clinton's server that day, that evening in Moscow. And right, as Mark himself said, so many of the president's problems are made by the president, not mm-hmm. made by outsiders trying to besmirch his correct. good name. And I think that that was something that he we was condemned for. Yeah, I mean, they make it easier for him to feel like a victim. You know, when, when Brennan and, the, and Clapper said those things, 
it made it easier, and they haven't stopped saying them despite the findings of the Mueller report. I want to ask you about folks like this, but not people who worked for the Obama administration, people who worked for Trump. I don't want to give you a chance to defend yourself from a criticism that I'm about to utter. We'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> and and you'll do and you'll do and you will do a brilliant job, I know. So one of the things in reading the book, and obviously you have named sources, you have unnamed sources, you know, this is a, a genre that's come in for plenty of criticism and you guys have heard it all and we're not here to litigate whether it's a good genre or not. The New York Times bestseller list would suggest that it certainly worked out well. But you talk to people like Rex Tillerson. Let me tell you, as somebody who's spent I'm creeping up on four decades now in foreign policy. I think of him as possibly the worst secretary of state we've ever had. And I say that not as a partisan matter, but as a a matter of somebody who actually does care a lot about the institution and values it. And, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about how much we honor the military and the men who served and the men and women who fight. And you know what? The Foreign Service, we may like them a little less. Their suits may be a little bit more pinstripey. But the reality is these are people also serving. And they were treated with contempt like garbage by Rex Tillerson and his teeny-weeny little team that he brought with him. I thought he was awful. And yet, in your book, he comes across as a grown-up and a great statesman and not a guy with an axe to grind when really he has a big axe to grind. Help me work that out. I'm happy to take this. So first off, we don't discuss who our sources are. We don't talk about who we've spoken to. But I'll, I'll say a couple things. There is no question that Rex Tillerson was reviled in the State Department. Uh, I have friends there, Mm -hmm. um, to put a fine point on it, who say that to me quite a lot. Not political appointees. Not political appointees. However, again, our guiding principle in this book was, let's take you in the room with Donald Trump. And when Rex Tillerson is in a room with Donald Trump, these are the scenes of what you see. Did we want to explain the Foreign Service and their experiences? Yes, if it reflected on what Donald Trump's portrait and decision-making was. I take the criticism. uh, We take any criticisms. We like constructive (laughs) criticism. But I would just say that, again, this book is the arc of Donald J. Trump. And to the degree to which there are moments when Rex Tillerson's in the room... He is the only person who stood up in the tank and said, that's not cool, man. (laughs) Uh, He is the only person who tried to step in front of, you know, a roar across the faces of all of these officers. Mm, Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, that's, you know, again, everybody's going to come at this. You know, let me put it this way. Any kind of story of this genre is going to elicit plenty of, of volunteers. And many of them will have an axe to grind, but that doesn't necessarily make their stories untrue. We so wish that our publisher gave us another 400 yeah, pages <laughs> and that the Washington Post gave us like another year leave. Yeah, I know, uh, I know. We would write the full history of all of Washington for yeah, these four years, well, but we had to stick to Trump. There's, a, there's another book in here, though, for yeah, sure. Yeah, we'll see. So Mark? There's, you, there's a point where you, you uh, describe the uh, confrontation between Rosenstein and uh, Nunes, right? Mm. Uh, the Intelligence Committee chairman who released this memo alleging all the uh, FISA abuses. And uh, you write that Nunes was dismissed as reckless conspiracy theorists by some in the FBI. Nunes was pretty much vindicated in that memo. I mean, the Justice Department uh, inspector general, who was an Obama appointee, basically said that the FBI provided false and falsified and misleading information to the FISA court. The Justice Department has withdrawn two of the FISA warrants, which means that was unlawful surveillance of, of Carter Page. I mean, hasn't Nunes been vindicated? I actually think you're you're partially right. 
the problem with Nunez's memo was he tried to stretch. This is something journalists have to avoid as well. He tried to stretch a little too far in saying that information was withheld from the FISA judges. I actually talked privately to people who've served on that court before when I saw the material and I asked them, what would you have thought if this information had not been brought to you, this specific information about GPS fusion being a funder essentially of this research? And um, they said, I would have liked to know, but they pretty much told you in these pages that it was a political entity fighting against Donald Trump. So the judges would, the FISA court would have been on alert that this was an adverse political group. They just didn't know the full identity. I think what Nunez's memo didn't allude to, that the IG did find, which Mm -hmm. was really damning, was this idea that in the follow-up successor monitoring approvals, the warrants, which were the extensions, that they had information that showed Carter Page was completely exonerated, and they didn't share that. That was a bigger deal. But also that Steele dossier, which was unproven and unverified, was we wouldn't have been here without the Steele dossier. I mean, that's essentially what the inspector general found. And so without the Steele dossier, there would have been no FISA warrants. There would have been no Mueller investigation. We would have had these two years. What would those two years have been like? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my God. So you have another book on the – I know the Washington Post will want you back for your day jobs, but you got another book on the – We're back hard at work uh, covering the presidency, covering – I was at a Bernie Sanders rally over the weekend in Texas. So uh, we're we're back at it, the Bernie story. Behind the scenes with Bernie? Oh, my goodness (laughs) me. Someone else is going to have to write (laughs) (laughs) That's a perfect note to end on. Thank you guys so much. Thank you so much for coming and joining us. Great work. This is amazing book. Fun. I'm so grateful to those guys for being willing to come in. I mean, I I said it to them, but I'll say it to you again. It's great to have a really successful book. On the other hand, you are then condemned to doing nothing but talking about everything in your book (laughs) again and again and again and again. I think we tried hard to get a little further afield, and I I really appreciated their willingness to answer some tough questions. Absolutely. They did a great job of it, and I think uh, I was glad to see Phil uh, talk about some of the positive things uh, that they had found about Donald Trump. Uh, which include the fact that politically, I think he is. He didn't say it quite this way, but he is a stable genius. He did tap in. He has a, that's he has me a, sighing, people. He, that's a, he has a way of communicating with a segment of the American public that no American leader, left, right, or center has ever had before. And uh, that that is underrated. And I think the Democrats should be very worried about going into 2020 because he well, doesn't With a socialist? Really. Yes, yes, possibly they should. Well, that's for that, please listen problem. to our last podcast. Exactly, right. But no, but what? look, you know, I really appreciated the way both Carol and Phil answered the questions because they thought about it. And it's true. People don't try to balance their coverage of Trump. And, you know, look, it's hard for me, too. I mean, I, I watch and all I want to do is tear my hair out and jump up and down and scream. But the reality is... that how you is, felt when he killed Soleimani? No, that's not how I felt Thank when you. he killed Soleimani. Mark. Is that how you felt when he killed Baghdadi? No, that wasn't how I felt when he killed Baghdadi. Is that how is you that, felt when what? he killed uh, Hamza bin Laden? I was less excited about Hamza. When he bombed Syria? Twice? Mark? <laughs> it's how I felt when he when he said he wanted to withdraw from Afghanistan yeah. and is about to. It's how I felt when he did a deal with the Taliban, which he's yeah. about to sign. It's how I felt when he betrayed our Kurdish allies. But, but, but this is but this is making the case, which we I think we agree on. There's, right, that there's... Donald Trump has done some things 
quite frankly, that are better than even his Republican predecessors that we support that we, I mean, you know, three American presidents said we're going to move the embassy to Jerusalem. Only Donald Trump did it. There's a lot of things that he's done. And that he's other, done terrible and, things. And then I'm, I'm agreeing with you. And, and so what I don't understand is the inability of people in Washington who are so consumed with Trump derangement that they can't balance. I'm not talking about our authors now. I'm talking about the commentary yeah. here. That they can't balance the good and the bad. That they can't say, Donald Trump, you did a great thing there. Atta boy. Donald Trump, that was a really bad thing to do. You shouldn't do that. You know, Donald Falling Trump balls is being... And, a, balls and strikes. Yeah. Donald Trump's being attacked unfairly. I'm going to defend him. Uh, Donald Trump is doing something really dumb. I'm going to say, I'm going to say it. This shouldn't but, be so hard. But this is a crisis in the commentariat, and this is a crisis in journalism, and this is a crisis in a lot of our communities. You know, um, Carol alluded to the fact that she, as a journalist, covered when you and I worked for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and we were talking about the fact that we did tons of stuff. We were talking about this off-air, guys. We did tons of stuff with the Democrats because mm-hmm. that's how you got stuff done. Yeah. It's become very hard to do that. And basically, you're not allowed to exhibit micro-deviationism. And so, you know, a lot of the news in Washington has, in the last couple of days, has also been about the fact that Trump has hired this this guy to conduct a purge of those who are not loyal to him. It's a great scoop by Jonathan Swan at Axios. And I have no trouble believing it. The problem is the way he I have no he trouble is, understanding it. I do. But, uh, well, wait a second. Let me just finish the thought and then I'll tell you. But, no. <laughs> shut up. <laughs> Um, but no, but, but seriously, but the, the problem is these ideological purges are happening on both sides of the aisle. It is you're not allowed to express any support for the president if you are a liberal because you will be defenestrated, you know, and if you are a Trump person, you're not allowed to express any doubt about the stable genius nature of our president and that or you too will be auto da fade. You know, the, this is how it has become. And that at the end of the day is part of the problem. And that's part of the problem for the book too, which yeah. is that its audience is largely people. It will be embraced by people who already hate Trump and derided by people who love Trump and ignored. And, you know, it, it, that's that's the end of national conversation. Okay. But going back to what you... you... Going back to where I want to do a Use you. <laughs> yes. But going back to what the, the issue you raised, which is this purge, so-called, um, you agree there is a deep state. There's a deep state in every country. Okay. But there's a deep, there are people in the government who are seeking to undermine President Trump's policies. The president of the United States has the right to have people around him who are executing his policies because he was elected. 63 million people voted for him, not for them. And when there, you know, when you have somebody like Anonymous, who not only writes a op-ed that basically says, I am trying to undermine Trump's policies and I'm staying in the administration and then publishes a book making money off of that and is still in the government. I understand why Donald Trump doesn't want people in the, you know, when I was a speechwriter, one of the things that the, the inside scoop about how speechwriting works is the speechwriter spends a lot of time with the president or with the secretary of defense, as I did before that in the Pentagon. And I'd have meetings with the president where he would tell me, I want to say X. And then we would write the speech and it would go into the staffing process and it would say and it would come back with comments. The president would never say X and the president should never say X and take X out, you know, <laughs> and I would not take X out and I'd get hell for it from this from the staffing process. But the president, I'll tell you a funny story. 
Wasn't, we that, wasn't there it, the same story about tear down this wall? Didn't the president? Yeah, right? exactly. So Peter, this is a great story. Peter Robinson, uh, who was a speechwriter for Ronald Reagan, wrote the tear down this wall speech. He gave it to Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan loved it because Ronald Reagan had said in a debate with Robert Kennedy in the 1960s, what could the Soviets do to win our trust? They could tear down the wall. It was him. And the State Department kept taking it out, and Ronald Reagan kept putting it back in. You know, this, it's, there's a long history of this going yeah, on. Except for the fact, Mark, that in Ronald Reagan put it back in. Donald Trump would want to find those people and then fire them. Hey, fair enough. I, and I that's think Ronald ridiculous. Reagan might no, I don't think so. It depends on what the, what the offense is. You, you have got to be a stable enough genius in order to be <laughs> able to have people who respectfully disagree with you. You do but, not want him to be the version doing. of Stalin that's in which are doing. people are that's afraid to different. tell him he's that wrong. Very different. I don't there are people. No, I will tell you why it's different. Because it's one thing to walk into the Oval Office and say to the president, I think this is a mistake. We're having a meeting over the speech. You shouldn't say this. Why shouldn't I say that? Because X. Well, I've, I disagree with you. Done. All right. It's entirely another thing to not take it out of the speech, but try to undermine the policy from your position. When the president has given the speech and executed the policy and given you orders and you don't follow them. Okay. And that's what's happening in this administration. I don't blame him. Now that he's – look, he had two years of the Mueller probe, another year of impeachment, uh, the impeachment inquiry and the, uh, and the impeachment trial. And now he's finally beyond that. And I understand why he wants to have people around him who are loyal and who are going to carry out his orders because he was elected, we weren't. All I'm saying is Stalin didn't have much to recommend him. And trying to emulate his leadership qualities is oh, possibly not a great far. idea. He's not Stalin. But remember, if people are afraid to speak out – in any way, it's wrong. And, you know, I think Donald Trump has gone too far. It's one thing to speak truth to power behind closed doors. And quite frankly, I'll give Jim Mattis credit for this, is that Mattis gave president advice. I didn't always agree with the advice that he, he gave, but he wrote a book. And he didn't expose all that stuff, and he didn't attack the president. Um, Although I suspect he may have talked to to uh, <laughs> 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 well, But that's the story for another day. <laughs> Thanks for Thanks, listening. Thanks, everybody. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.